Beloved, the story is told that in the early days of IBM, when Thomas Watson, one of the founders, was CEO, that a junior executive embarked on a risky adventure with company funds for the company's benefit, but in a foolhardy kind of way, and they lost the $10 million. Uh, the story goes on that when the junior executive appeared before Thomas Watson, he said, I'm expecting that you want my resignation. And uh, Watson's reply was, are you crazy? We just invested $10 million in educating you. We can't let you go now. <laughs> you see, there is a room for failure. There is room for failure. We understand that at the human level. And beloved, even as we continue our journey through Hebrews chapter 11, through the so-called Hall of Faith chapter, we realize that God lays out for us examples from the Old Testament. And Scripture is honest. God is honest as he records the affairs of the heroes of the faith and the heroines of the faith, the men and women of old. We see them in their great stories where faith triumphs, but also where there's failure and where there's fear. Uh, we can think of Noah. Noah became drunk and exposed himself. We can think of Abraham. Abraham lied twice and essentially threw his beautiful wife Sarah under the bus. And then son Isaac did the same. Jacob was a schemer. He was a heel grabber all the days of his life. The disciples played the coward at the crucifixion. When godly women were there, the disciples were nowhere to be found. Mighty Peter, who was the leader of the apostles, denied Christ three times in a most forceful way. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And what we have here, again, is God laying out this portrait gallery of faith from the Old Testament by way of examples for us. The author here in Hebrews 11 doesn't point out the failures. He brings out the elements of the triumphs of faith in these men and in these women. Our passage this morning are verses 23 through 28, where after we went through the antediluvian superstars of the faith, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, then through the patriarchs, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, we now come to the man Moses, who, if we understand anything about Moses, first and foremost, and the only place of important scripture, but even from the human world, people understand that Moses was truly an extraordinary man. This is the word of God, Hebrews 11 and verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. 
So what we do here now as we turn the page, so to speak, from verse 22 to verse 23, the author is leaving behind the book of Genesis, and he's moving to the time and the period of the Exodus. And what we see here with Moses is similar to Abraham. Moses, like Abraham, receives a lengthy treatment at the hand of this human author writing to the group of Jewish believers, being written by God for our benefit as well. And certainly for the Jewish believers at the time, they highly esteemed Moses as they ought. So it's not surprising to us that he does such a thing. Moses was God's appointed messenger and, in a certain way, at the human level, the redeemer of the nation of Israel. Moses was the apostle to the nation. He was the testifier. He was the deliverer of the law of God to the people of God. By any stretch of imagination, his leadership, Moses' leadership, was inspirational, and his wisdom was renowned. In fact, the author of Hebrews treats Moses at great lengths. All the way back in chapter 3, in verses 1 through 6, he brings Moses first to our attention there, where, again, he elevates Moses and brings out very significant positive qualities of him in the context of the beginning of Hebrews all the way through of the context of the absolute infinite superiority of Christ. And even by elevating Moses and pointing out the good things, that elevates Christ even that much more. So he treats him first in chapter 3, and then in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, now in our passage here in 11, and again in chapter 12, Moses will be the subject of the author of Hebrews. D.L. Moody said this, and I like this is kind of a threefold outline of Moses' life from the perspective of D.L. Moody. He said, quote, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was a somebody. Then he spent his second 40 years realizing and learning that he was a nobody. And then he spent his final 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody, end quote. What we have here in our text, Hebrews 11, 23 through 28, covers 80 years, the first 80 years, from Moses' birth to the Exodus. And We have a built-in outline that God has given for us here this morning. We encounter the first two words in verse 23, by faith. Two words in the English, one word in the original Greek. And this has been the key, this has been the mark of each little brilliant vignette of shining truth of the examples. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. Abraham, Sarah, and so forth. And what we see here in these six verses is Four times we see by faith. So that is our built-in outline. And beloved, what we have here are four faith principles that we see from the life of Moses. Namely, faith believes God's word. Faith values God's reward. Faith endures God's providence. And faith trusts God's salvation. So that... These imperfect examples, this imperfect example, actually these imperfect examples because the first one is Moses' parents, that these imperfect examples of faith help you and I as imperfect practitioners of faith to understand and to take encouragement, take courage and hope. 
and even answer the question when we think of our life, our life in Christ, how do we begin? How do we continue in Christ? And in some ways, even more to the point, how do we prepare for the end? As we saw in the previous three examples in verses 20 through 22, when we are getting ready to have death's cold dew on our brow and we're getting ready to take our last breath, how do we prepare for that in Christ? And our heart's prayer, beloved, is as we would open these verses, may God open our hearts. May God's open word be met with your and my open hearts to the riches as we would unpack these verses pregnant with meaning. So the first faith principle that we see in verse 23 is faith believes God's word. And look at the text, verse 23. Again, it begins with, by faith, Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Again, the faith we're looking at here is not the faith of little baby Moses. It's the faith of his parents, Amram and Jochebed. We know that from Amram and Jochebed, excuse me, from Exodus 6.20. That is dad Amram and mom Jochebed. It is their faith that the author is bringing forth to us here. And by their faith, they hid baby Moses for three months. Why did they do that? Now, some of us may be very familiar with the story. Some of us may not be. If we turn back to Exodus uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we'll be reminded. Um, As we read the word of God from Genesis, Genesis 50, Genesis, the book of Genesis, ends with Joseph and the death of Joseph. The nation of Israel is in Egypt in a very prosperous situation by virtue of God's tremendous favor that was on the man of God, Joseph. But then when we come over to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, and through the rest of that chapter, we see that other pharaohs rose up, and the nation of Israel in the hundred of years going forward from Joseph fell into disfavor, and in fact literally fell into slavery. And there were ruthless, cruel, hard Egyptian taskmasters that were beating and treating the nation of Israel cruel. All the way to the point, though, even though the Egyptian taskmasters, and even though Israel was in slavery, at the end of Exodus 1, they were a blessed people by God, and they were growing mighty in number, so much so that the Pharaoh at that time became fearful of this population of slaves and issued his horrible evil edict that every firstborn son of Israel must be murdered either by the knife or or by being thrown in the river. And even the parents were the ones that were supposed to uh, institute, and not institute, but they were the ones that were supposed to execute this horrible command and edict from the king, from the Pharaoh. But now look at chapter 2, verse 1. We read, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. So from again 6, verse 20, Amram marries Jochebed. Verse 2, And the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance. This would be Moses' older sister, Miriam. She stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought her to her. 
When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. So Miriam is calling Jochebed her mother, who is Moses' mother. Verse 9. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she, the Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Beloved, that is the birth of Moses. But there's so much riches there. But one element I want to bring out here is an element that the author of Hebrews brought out, namely the very curious phrase that he was a beautiful child. The author of Hebrews in verse 23, that he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. In both the Greek and the Hebrew, I mean, this means polished manners, genteel, elegant, comely, fair. So what are we to make of this? I can tell you one thing, and you may be able to surmise this on your own. This doesn't mean that if he'd been an ugly baby, they would have thrown him in the Nile. That's not what this means here. But what, what is meant by here, and actually, if we go over to another exposition of this account, we can go to the testimony of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verse 20 through 44. And Stephen brought out this element of Moses. In Acts 7, 20, Stephen said, when they were getting ready to kill him, he said, Moses was born, and New American Standard translates it, and he was lovely in the sight of God. Literally, he was beautiful to God. So the same word beautiful that we see, that you see in Hebrews eleven twenty three, is what Stephen said, but Stephen adds he was beautiful to God. So to be sure, Moses was, any way you slice it, a truly extraordinary man. There's no question that he was physically, whatever this looks like. I don't think this means that he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit the way John the baptizer and forerunner was in the womb. But he was a very beautiful baby. But there was something beyond just the mere physical beauty of this baby. There was some dimension of one destined by God to accomplish great things. And so I think Mr. and Mrs. Amram understood that when they looked at this beautiful gift that God had given them. Continue on at the end of verse 23 in Hebrews 11, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, understand this. Uh, the president of the United States may issue an edict. If it's law of the land and you break it, then there could be some consequences, or he may issue some other executive orders or other edicts and I won't go off on that here at this point, but understand this. In that time in the nation of Egypt that, that time, one didn't ignore the king's edict. One didn't flaunt Pharaoh's edict. To disobey the edict of King Pharaoh was carrying severe consequences. In this case, if it was discovered the baby would get killed, and not only would the baby be killed and executed and murdered, so would mom and dad, and even so would older sister Miriam in this case. So there's a threat against the babies, and there's a threat against parents that would protect babies. But Mr. and Mrs. Amram, Moses' mother and father were strong and courageous in the Lord because 
They believed God's word. They understood what God had promised the nation of Israel. And in some way, they had an inner conviction by the spiritual beauty, however they sensed that, however God put that on their heart, that this baby might have a role in fulfilling God's promise that he had given. And they believed that. And so, because of this, they were unafraid of the most mighty man on the planet at that time, Pharaoh of Egypt. You see, beloved, you see, dear friend, the fear of the Lord takes away all other fears. We are commanded to fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of what? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. And in fact, we are also commanded to not fear anything else. And the fear of God takes away all the other fears, which are all sinful fears and unhealthy fears. And the choice that Moses' mother and father face here is the same choice that all of us, every human being has from that time and forward. It is either faith or fear, fear or faith. And which is it? Practically speaking, for the child of God, we could say that faith is like a muscle. If you exercise it, it will grow. If you pay attention to it, it will flourish. But if you neglect it, it will wither and shrink. It will atrophy. And this is why the reality is, even in Christ, some are weak and discouraged, and others are strong and encouraged. Strong, encouraged, and encouraging. And we strengthen our faith in the same way that Moses' mother and father would strengthen their faith. We strengthen our faith with the pure milk of the word. Uh, For them, it was an oral tradition. You and I have Bibles in our hand. We strengthen our spiritual muscles by immersing ourselves in the word of God, by taking the meat of the great doctrines contained therein. We strengthen our faith muscles with service and prayer and loving one another. And by the way, one element here as well is this, this illustration of Moses' mother and father is a beautiful example of a beautiful truth, namely two truths that come together, namely the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. You see, Moses' parents demonstrated their faith by hiding the baby. They didn't say, we believe God and we believe that there's something unique about our child, so God will protect our child, so we're going to just take him on a walk and stroll in front of all the Egyptian guards because we know God will protect him. They don't do that. They demonstrate wisdom. Yes, divine sovereignty, but human responsibility. You may remember Satan, one of the temptations Satan gave to the man Jesus Christ was throw yourself off the roof and God will send his angels to protect you. And what did Jesus respond with? He said, do not tempt the Lord your God. So yes, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So Moses' mother and father believed God and believed the word of God. That's the main point here. And they understood what their actions and what their responsibility is flowing from that. And if you will allow me, I want to give an example because this became uh, real for me even with a conversation I had with my beautiful beloved daughter Rebecca this morning. One of the dynamics of human depravity that actually has received a new name, it's called jugging. And basically this is where criminals will watch women or more weak defenseless men taking money out of ATMs and then follow them out to the parking lot, sometimes even following them home and then robbing them. 
There's even been a recent situation where a woman fought back with a thief trying to take her purse, and he picked her up, slammed her, and she's paralyzed now. It's called jugging, and apparently it's prevalent, I think, like in California and Texas. All that to say, my beautiful daughter Rebecca, she's not aware of this dynamic. She hadn't heard that word. She wasn't even aware that this is a new manifestation of the depravity of man. <laughs> but I was having a conversation with her earlier this week, and she was telling me that she was in Walmart. She took money out of an ATM, and she noticed a man in a wheelchair with a coat in his lap. And there was just something about the way he was looking at her that just didn't sit right with her. And she was, had some concerns, some caution about this, so she actually went, did a deliberate uh, route to go out of the way, went to where she could watch the front of the Walmart. She actually saw the man in the wheelchair go and wait by the door for 10 minutes. And then eventually he left. After he left, she went outside and looked through the window. She saw him get up, take his wheelchair, and just like a very normal, healthy man, go and put his wheelchair, pack it up, and put it in the back of, her, of uh, his uh, pickup truck. So I said, well, sweetie, I think you just avoided being robbed. You avoided this whole jugging concept. The reason why I bring this is I want to give an application to you dear ladies here. Some of the younger ladies, even some of the older ladies. Uh, you are wonderful, gracious ladies. You have a heart for people. But if you are in a situation where something just doesn't seem right to you, your inner signal is going off. And then, but then there's the other poll saying, but I don't want to offend this person. Your safety is far more important than the offense of, an, of someone. Let someone else take care of it. And I see some children of police officers and other people shaking their heads. That is something my beloved Margie and I <clears throat> had impressed upon uh, Rebecca. That's something I want all you ladies. That may be, I may be preaching to the choir. If that's not, uh, that's something to take. But in any event, let me come back to the text here. The faith principle that we see demonstrated in Moses' mother and father is faith believes the word of God, believes God's word. The second faith principle in the next three verses is faith values God's reward. When we go from verse 23 to verse 24, the author takes us 40 years in the future. Moses is now a 40-year-old man, and his faith values God's reward. And what we see in these three verses are three marks of valuing God's reward. Valuing God's reward is marked by a great refusal, a significant choice, and a focused vision. You see, Moses now on this side of the narrative, as a 40-year-old man, he has all the privilege, honor, comfort, and even training that the ancient world could provide. And what we see the author bringing out here is Moses deliberately casts aside this earthly security. Look at verse 24. By faith. Again, that's that two-word phrase telling us that we're now coming to point two in the outline of the author's sermon here. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In Acts chapter 7, you can turn there or you can listen. Stephen, as he is giving his defense, in verses 20 through 22, verses 20 and 21, basically Stephen exposits and talks about and cites what we read earlier in Exodus. Verse 20, Stephen says in his defense, it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God. Literally, he was beautiful to God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he'd been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. But then verse 22, 
And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power and words and deeds. Again, Moses was an extraordinary man. We even read in the Old Testament when he passes away, when he dies at the age of 120, God tells us that his eyes had not dimmed and his vigor had not abated. So he began in a remarkable way, he ended in a remarkable way, and he was educated and trained in everything that the mightiest empire at the time could afford him. The privilege, the honor, the comfort, the prestige, the riches, the power, all of these were his. But he deliberately had a great refusal of this. And then that takes us to the second mark of valuing God's reward that we see in verse 25 is a significant choice. It, significant choice. You see, Moses at this point comes to a fork in the road. He comes to a crossroads. There is door A or door B. And it is true when there are significant choices and decisions, sometimes you can kick the can down the road and delay, defer it. But there are other times you don't have that option. You must choose. And that's precisely what Moses does here. Verse 25, read the words, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. Again, Moses had come to his crossroads and he deliberately chose, he had the significant choice to identify as a Hebrew, not as a Jew, not, I'm sorry, as a Hebrew, not as an Egyptian, to identify as a Jew, not as an Egyptian. But the text here is beautiful. This is not merely a national identity. More to the point, this is a spiritual identity. Notice he says he doesn't say to endure ill treatment with the people of Israel. He chooses to endure ill treatment with the people of God. To be sure, he is identifying with the biological ethnic group of people, ethnicity from which, how many races are there? One, human race, different ethnicity. So he is, side topic, he is deliberately identifying with the biological ethnicity from which he came, but more importantly, he is identifying with the God of Israel. There is a spiritual identification here, and the choice here is not merely to identify with the people of God, but to suffer with the people of God. That is the significant choice that he makes. Again, the Israelites at this point endure daily abuse from the ruthless Egyptian task masters. Uh, later on, here in chapter 11, in verse 37, after we move from Moses and Rahab, then we move to a cloud of nameless, uh, nameless wonderful witnesses, some of whom we can recognize. But in verse 37, the author of Hebrews chapter 11 gives kind of a summary statement of what many of these godly men and women face. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. So the same English word, ill-treated, ill-treated, kakukeo. But what's interesting, that same root word, kakukeo, that is ill-treated in verse 37, in verse 25, it's sum kakeo. It's together with, suffer with. To, it's a joining. It's not just I'm choosing to suffer. I'm choosing together with the people of God. Endure ill treatment with that all comes from this one word. Moses understands that the majority of the life that he's, going to, that he's choosing to be 
part of, to identify with, will bring hardship, danger, scorn, and suffering. And for you and for me, we should understand, beloved, understand this. My faith, your faith is strengthened by trials. Trials, difficulties, disappointment, it has a purifying effect. It produces a deeper and stronger faith in the child of God. Our suffering blows away the chaff of error and sin. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 5.3, we exult in our tribulations. Why, Paul? Knowing that tribulation brings about what? Perseverance. Perseverance in the Lord. Back here in verse 25, Moses is choosing to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And we can ask the question, this begs the question, does the privilege and advantages of the high position, is that sinful in and of itself? And the answer is no, and I'll speak more on this in just a little bit, but the point here is for Moses, not just the overt, obvious things that were inherently sinful, but even to, in, to uh, continue enjoy the non-sinful pleasures would have been a sin for Moses because that was not God's plan for him. And the pleasures of sin are passing. The contrast is Sin's pleasures are passing. They are ephemeral. They will vanish. They will rise up like mist in the morning and be burned away. But the joy, the spiritual treasures to which Moses was looking abide forever. To be sure, Moses had a massive amount at the physical level to lose, a kingdom and empire. But he was considering, look at the Verse 26, for he was considering, but he was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He was considering, he was weighing the issue in his mind. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said that Moses was looking to choose afflictions and poverty rather than riches and pleasures. Uh, the text in the New American Standard, I mean, the contrast is there, reproach and riches. And one can ask, who in the world would choose reproach over riches? From a human standpoint, from a human logic, we could understand that. Why do we understand? Why for us, with the illumination of Scripture, do we understand why Moses chose reproach rather than riches? Namely, it was his proximity to God. Moses' nearness to God, to be sure, in a very unique way where he saw God, he saw a, a burning bush, he had direct a revelation from the Lord, many unique elements. But even beyond these unique times for the 120 years of his life, the vast majority of Moses' life was just like your life and my life, where he had to believe in the unseen. He had to trust the word of God, and it was his proximity to God that made Moses the extraordinary man that he was, the extraordinary preacher that he was, the extraordinary poet, warrior, the sage that he was, were because of his proximity to God. We can imagine that from a human wisdom standpoint, surely at some point it entered Moses' mind, 
wouldn't it be better for me to stay in this position? I can rise up to a position of immense power and influence. Surely I could do a better work for my people by being and staying right where I'm at. And that gets again back, to, takes us back to the question, was that position wrong in and of itself? Where could we find the answer to that? Well, actually right here, we don't have to look far. We can go back just one verse and we can look at Joseph. You see, Joseph and Moses were in almost the exact same position, in a position of immense power. And in the case of Joseph, that was God's ministry for Joseph. But it's not God's ministry for Moses. Beloved, sometimes there are some things that matter more than other things. And as a result, sometimes there is a necessary no and an emphatic yes. Because whether... You're a Joseph or whether you're a Moses, the ultimate is always more important than the immediate. Sometimes the good is the worst enemy of the best. And Joseph and Moses had almost the exact same good, but they had very different bests in the economy of God. Beloved, and that's what we see working out in the body of Christ. That's what we see working out in our life and existence. And you may say, why, why am I having so much difficulty in my workplace? Why are things not going my way? Why is school so difficult? Why, why do we have all these things? Dear beloved brother or sister, if you're in Christ, trust God. Do what you need to do to minister well through those situations, but trust God and trust the providence of God. And one more point here, it's fascinating. He was considering the reproach of Christ, the reproach of Christ. Uh, Moses was 1,500 years before, well, he's born probably around uh, 1525. The Exodus happened in 1445 uh, B.C. So 1,500 years before Christ. So what does the author of Hebrews mean when he said he considered the reproach of Christ? Is it just the author of Hebrews on this side of the cross, on the side of the new covenant, reading the new back into the old? I would say that Moses probably knew far more messianic truth than we might think. He didn't know as much truth with details as you do and as I do because we're on this side of the cross. We're on this side of the incarnation. We have the entire New Testament before us. But Moses, I think, knew far more perhaps about the Messiah that we might think otherwise. This is, for example, why he said later, as recorded in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses said, the Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you will listen to him. So he had a messianic prophecy. And we can even go back prior to Moses. We can think of Abraham. Jesus taught us in John 8, 56. Actually, he teaches us. He said this directly to the nation of Israel. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Or we could go back even further. Job, in Job 19.25, when Job was sitting on the ash heap with all his health issue and having lost his sons and all his wealth, do you remember what Job said? Job said, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take a stand on the earth. So, beloved, you and I are blessed to have more detail and more progressive revelation of the great truths of the incarnation and Christ and what that means. But Moses and Abraham and Job, I think, had far more than we might think otherwise. So, 
A great refusal, a significant choice. A third mark of valuing God's reward is a focused vision. Moses, just like Joseph and and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and Sarah, had a forward-looking faith. Moses focused on a nobler target than the riches of Egypt. Verse 26, at the end, the author says, for he was looking to the reward. We ask, well, why did you say all those things up front about Moses? This is the reason why. For he was looking to the reward with his forward-looking faith. Beloved, the reproach of Christ, the yoke of Christ is light, but the reward is great. His cross is heavy. Your cross that you bear, the burden you bear, as Christ says in Luke, in Mark chapter 8, and Luke as well, in the Gospels as well, the cross is heavy, but the yoke is light. The cost is high. The invitation to Christ is as wide as possible, but the gate is narrow. The door is narrow. And in the presence of the pearl of great price, all other gems lose their luster. And as Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Moses Understood. That was Moses' forward-looking face. That was Moses' focused vision. And dear friend, if you're here this morning not trusting Christ alone by faith alone, you have a faith, you have a belief. And what good is a faith that leaves you in the dying embers of your life? The choice is you can gain now and lose forever, or you can surrender now and gain forever. That are the spiritual treasures. Those are the spiritual treasures. That is the choice that is clear. And this faith that is being elucidated, expanded, brought to our attention again and again and again in Hebrews chapter 11. This faith is not just a door to be entered. It's a path to be pursued. This faith is a decisive act. And it is a sustained lifestyle. That's part of the point of these imperfect examples given by God to us imperfect practitioners of this faith. And in closing this, we can ask the question, have, have I done anything in my life that's marked by a great refusal? Have I done anything in my life that is marked by a significant choice? Is my life, is your life now marked by a focused vision on the glory of Christ and the glories of heaven that await you? Well, there's a third faith principle. Faith believes God's word. Faith values God's reward. The third faith principle is faith endures God's provision. And I'm using provision here. Provision could be used in three different ways, among others. To be sure, the provision of God is the provision is the work and the provision God provides at the cross that Jesus provided for your salvation. Every Lord's Day morning when we pray over the offering, we thank God for the provision he gives us with our food and our shelter. There's a third way we can think of provision, namely, it is your life. It may be pleasurable, it may be peaceful, it may be comfortable, or it may be marked by tragedy and disappointment and loss. That is God's provision. And as a child of God, a faith principle that demonstrates in his children is we endure God's provision. You see, Moses, the context here, verse 27, Moses, like Joseph, understood that Egypt, as wonderful as it was for him, was not his home. 
That was not the promised land. That's why verse 27, by faith, outline point three, he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. Quick point here. Notice the order that we've seen here in Hebrews. The choice came before the threat. The author brings out the threat of the king, the wrath of Pharaoh here, but the choice was made prior. What that tells us is the governing impetus of Moses' flight from Egypt was not fear, it was faith. And he endured, verse 27 continues, he endured as seeing him who is unseen. So he leaves Egypt by faith and he's looking to where he's going, but he's looking at the unseen God. This is the eye of faith. Your eyes of faith can see what is invisible to the rest of the world. And so Moses looked at the future and he looked at the invisible. Moses was more concerned with the invisible king of kings than the visible king of Egypt. Moses' faith was the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the pull of the unseen that we've seen through all these examples and what we will see even yet again when we continue through chapter 11. Because they, because you, because Moses trusts the unseen God, so they, so you, so Moses can trust the unseen fulfillment of his promises. And the conviction is so strong that the not seen becomes the seen with the eyes of faith. And friend, at some point, friend, again, if you're here not following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, at some point you will have to choose whose anger do you fear? The anger of your boss, your family, your neighbors, or the righteous, holy anger of God where the fire does not quench and the worm does not die. You will at some point come to choose whose scorn will you flee, the world or God's. You see, faith in God dispels fear of man. That's the example we see here of Moses. And because Moses followed God, therefore he didn't fear Pharaoh, and so he endured. And beloved, remember, the sovereign will of God will never take you to a place that the sovereign grace of God can't keep you. The sovereign will of God will never take you to a place where the sovereign grace of God can't keep you and can't comfort you. And what this means practically, this means we say, I say to myself, fear is not going to govern my life. Anxiety is not going to govern my values. Faith believes God's word. Faith values God's reward. Faith endures God's provision. Finally, verse 28, faith trusts God's salvation. You see, Moses understood wrath and grace. He understood judgment and mercy. He understood condemnation and salvation. That's even reflected and flows out from Psalm 90 that we read earlier in our public reading of Scripture. And so now as we come to verse 28, another 80 years has passed. He's now an 80-year-old young man, relatively speaking, somewhat at the time. Verse 28, by faith, outline point four, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood. 
Uh, the Greek grammar behind kept means that he finished it in that one occasion in Exodus, but he did it with continuing ramifications. In other words, the Passover and the sprinkling of blood that Moses kept on that one faithful night became a permanent memorial and reminder for the nation of Israel. This is reflected Exodus 12, 14, where it's called, uh, well, I'll read the whole verse, Exodus 12, 14. God says to Moses, now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance for the nation of Israel until Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Prince of peace, the Lord of lords, comes, and on the Thursday night, the evening before his crucifixion, he observed the last Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper communion, which, by the way, this being the first Sunday of the month, we would normally have, this is kind of an extra announcement, a freebie. We would normally have communion, but because we are blessed to have the Good Friday service this Friday, that's not why we're not doing communion now, but we will do communion on Friday. And that was when he transitioned from the Passover to the Lord's Supper. Back in the text, verse 28 at the end, so that, purpose statement, he observed the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. Who was the destroyer? In that tenth and final fateful and fatal plague that fell on Egypt, who was the destroyer? To be sure, there were times in the Old Testament when God would dispense special supernatural, even well, supernatural judgment. He would send an angel. But that's not the case here. This is personal. This is God. This is Yahweh himself. Back in Exodus chapter 11 and 12, God makes this clear. You can turn or you can listen. Exodus 11, verse 4. <clears throat> God is explaining to Moses the fearful wrath that is coming. Verse 4 of 11, ex Exodus 11. Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. Or chapter 12, verse 12. Yahweh says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. God makes this personal. But when the author brings out the observance of the Passover, what he is telling us here is that in the same way that that angel of death that was God himself that passed over and destroyed the firstborn of Egypt or even of Israel if they didn't obey the Passover and sprinkle the blood. Those who did, the judgment passed over their house. You see, only a man of faith, only a woman of faith, the men were the ones that would sacrifice the lamb and would sprinkle the blood. But only a man of faith or a woman of faith behind that would believe God's promise, sacrifice the lamb, and sprinkle the blood. And in the same way where Abraham saw the ram in the thicket, so also the blood on the doorpost, the lamb, the Passover lamb, that points to Christ as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That was a real-life picture of substitution and provision and salvation of a man or a woman who trusts God's salvation. That is the message. John Chrysostom, the fourth century 
great golden mouth was said preacher said this quote even now the destroyer is still moving around in the depth of night but let us armed with Christ's sacrifice since God has brought us out of Egypt figuratively speaking from darkness and from idolatry beloved that is the beautiful salvation that you and I enjoy in Christ and when you and I stand together with Moses and Abraham and Sarah and the great cloud of witnesses and men and women from every land, tongue, tribe, and nation who are redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and we appear before the throne in heaven and God rehearses and goes through how he received glory from the acts of faith of all of his children. What a gracious very gracious day in heaven that will be for God's glory and for our joy. And beloved, as we finish our treatment of Moses, as great as Moses is and was, or was and is, he pales infinitely in comparison to Christ. Moses was the giver of the law. He was the messenger of the law. He was the messenger. Jesus is the message. He's the author and the perfecter. Jesus is the author and perfecter of even Moses' faith. Moses loved God. Jesus is God. And beloved, dear friend, understand this, the faith that saves. It's not the quantity of your faith that saves you. It's not the quality of your faith, of my faith that saves me. It's the object of faith that saves us, the man, Jesus Christ. That is the great testimony of Moses and all the clouds of witness of all of God's children. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the work of grace and mercy you had Truly, Moses was a unique man, but he was a dead sinner, independent of your movement in his life, independent of your grace in his life, independent of, in a sense, of you putting life where there was no life before. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, that we can be encouraged by these men and women of old and that we are encouraged by one another. Be glorified, Lord God, in all that we do. Help us to excel yet more for your glory, for the joy of the beloved, and for a gospel witness to a lost and dying world. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we depart, that we do all these things. Amen.